0: On April 29th, 1986, the day the library burned, I was living in New York. While my romance with libraries had not been renewed yet, I cared a lot about books, and I am sure I would have noticed a story about a massive fire in a library, no matter where that library was. The Central Library fire was not a minor matter, not a cigarette smoldering in a trash can that would have gone without mention. It was a huge, furious fire that burned for more than seven hours and reached temperatures of 2,000 degrees. It was so fierce that almost every firefighter in Los Angeles was called upon to fight it. More than one million books were burned or damaged. I couldn't imagine how I didn't know of an event of this magnitude, especially something involving books, even though I was living on the other side of the country when it occurred. When I got home from touring the library with Brecher, I looked up the New York Times from April 29, 1986. The fire had started mid-morning Pacific time, which would have been early afternoon in New York. By then, the Times would have already published that day's paper. The front page stories were the usual fare, including the postponement of mobster John Gotti's trial, a warning from Senator Bob Dole that the federal budget was in trouble, and a photograph of President Reagan and his wife Nancy waving goodbye as they embarked on a trip to Indonesia. On the right side of the front page, over a skinny, single-column story, was the headline, Soviet Announces Nuclear Accident at Electric Plant, Mishap Acknowledged After Rising Radiation Levels Spread to Scandinavia. The next day, the headline on the follow-up story grew to panic size, announcing Soviet reporting atom plant disaster seeks help abroad to fight reactor fire with a place line of Moscow, USSR. The burning of Central Library in Los Angeles was finally mentioned in the New York Times on April 30th in a story that appeared on page A14. The biggest library fire in American history had been upstaged by the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown. The books burned while most of us were waiting to see if we were about to witness the end of the world. Shh. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine a kick back, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf for mine Your shelf Hello, and welcome to Your Shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library.
1: I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library.
0: And today we're talking about the work of Susan Orlean.
1: Yes, I've been looking forward to this one. Where should we begin? Where should we begin? Let's talk first about our experiences before with the work of Susan Orlean, how... Uh, How are we coming to this discussion?
0: I had never read anything by Susan Orlean before. I had heard of her books, particularly the library book, which just came out a couple of years ago and was chosen as a Reese's book club pick. And I think that's all.
1: Okay, okay. I've loved Susan Orlean for quite a while. I don't remember the first thing I read. I think I read a lot of Susan Orlean in school. In writing classes, I know I read *The Orchid Thief* at that point, which is a book I still love. I didn't didn't have time to reread it for this this episode, but uh, I'm gonna read a little piece of it that stayed with me, just kind of to illustrate her her writing style.
0: And we watched adaptation, which is basically. And we watched the same
1: adaptation, thing. and I'd read some of the profiles particularly The American Man at Age 10, which is one of her most famous pieces. So that's that's where I was coming from. She's always fascinated me, and she has a real way with language. And I think of her as a real heir to sort of the great creative nonfiction legacy or tradition, mm-hmm. you know, that as particularly. So she's a New Yorker staff writer, has been since 1992, and I think she's a real continuer of the you know the tradition of e b white and and Joseph Mitchell and writers like Janet Malcolm and all these wonderful, wonderful creative nonfiction writers so so let's talk about what we read, what we decided to read for this this time., uh, we ended up reading different things,
0: yeah, that's different that there wasn't anything that we both read.
1: that's true so the the one thing, and it's you know we'll talk about this more is. So I had read The Orchid Thief. Becky had not. I have
0: not.
1: Um, and but we did watch uh, Adaptation, which is an I hesitate to call it an adaptation of the book. It's it's sort of a it's a movie that it, the book is a springboard or an inspiration um, more than it's a traditional like adaptation. But it kind of plays with the idea of adaptation and
0: it's a movie about trying to make an adaptation of The Orchid Thief.
1: Right, The Orchid Thief. Just to give like a little thumbnail for people. I think is probably, up until the library book, maybe her most famous book, much talked about. And it's a just a beautiful, it, so it centers around, it started out as a profile, sort of a classic New Yorker profile of a man named John LaRoche, who's sort of a botanist and an eccentric and an orchid hunter in Florida. And so she gets fascinated with him. She writes about him. And then she ends up expanding it into this book that is about him, is about Obsession. I would say that's the thing it's mainly about. And one of the joys, I think, of creative nonfiction in particular is seeing where. So you have all these stories. I had a nonfiction, creative nonfiction teacher in college who said, There's just stories everywhere. You just reach over and pick one up, you know? And is where are they going to go? Where are they going to go with this? How far are they going to go to find out what they want to find out? What direction are they going to take it in? And she takes it in all kinds of directions. She goes into history. She goes into, you know, Florida as a place, all kinds of different things. And also I think, and this comes up in her work, I think again and again, and I saw it in the the book I read, Rin and Tin, Tin, is this idea of obsession or passion as a human trait that she wants to investigate, but also as a sort of writing as the shadow subject. Part of why she's interested in it is... It's a corollary you know she's writing about this these people who are so obsessed with these plants and who let their lives be defined by these obsessions um and i think always there as a sort of shadow subject is is art making you know these um obsessions she's looking at are a corollary to the one she is what she's doing herself which is being obsessed and finding out all this stuff and,
0: and- I think that's what the movie adaptation does, too. It's not like a straight adaptation in any way that you would think about it. And this movie came out... I think they'd they'd sold the rights like before she had published the book. They sold the movie rights, I think, based on the New Yorker article. And so it came out in 2002. And it was a really big movie. I never watched it until last night. But Charlie Kaufman wrote it, and it's about him writing it. And he had just come off of, like, this huge success with being John Malkovich. And really, the movie is about, like, his obsession with trying to, like, adapt this book. It's a crazy movie. Oh, my God. It goes all kinds of different directions. It was interesting. We read some like interviews with Susan Orlean talking about her like comfort with where they took the character. Cause like, <laughs> or lack of comfort. <laughs> Cause uh, she's played by Meryl Streep in the movie.
1: And this is not, we'll just say this is not a spoiler free zone as you all know, if you've been listening. So there's going to be some spoilers in this, but like the whole thing is this like, yeah. So Charlie Kaufman is a character played by Nicholas Cage, Nicolas Cage as is his brother. So Nicolas Cage is doing like a a Haley Mills-style twin thing. He's Um, really good at it. And he does it really well. Um, The relationship between the brothers is really... So like the movie is funny. It's weird. It's funny. It's sad. And so like the first half of the movie, it doesn't stray from the facts really of like...
0: Except for the fact that Charlie Kaufman does not have a brother.
1: Well, right. I meant so much much as Susan Orlean. Oh, right. It stays pretty faithful to idea of the book and and the facts of like her life even though it's not really about it and then the second half it just it just cuts loose and um a lot of stuff happens that sounds like susan Arlene was not initially super comfortable about she's like she's like you know worried she's like, this is gonna ruin my career or like people are gonna believe some of this stuff yeah. and she talks so i read an interview with her where she talked about she came to really like the movie and she she now she's proud of it but she uh she talked about her 15-year-old son finally watching it. She had been trying to get him to read The Orchid Thief for years, and he's like, I'm not interested, and then he decided to watch Adaptation. She wanted him to read the book first, but she talked about how some of the really outrageous stuff like her snorting drug made from a ghost orchid, she worried about less because it was like so, okay so absurd that people would get it, but like her character has an affair with her subject, and that she talks about that does happen, and that she was worried, attaches itself more with this idea. Some people get this idea and they get mixed up whether that was true or not, that she had an affair with her subject. And then it just gets more and more outlandish. There's like a gunfight. A man is killed by an alligator. Toward the end, I mean, and it's super, you're like on the edge of the seat. You want to see where it goes. And by the end, you're just like, what? You just keep saying, what, what? No, what?
0: What? Yeah, and I didn't know, like, I'd I'd known about Adaptation. It was a huge movie, but I didn't know it was based on, you know, I didn't know anything about it. Until we were talking about this recently, and Austin was like, oh, they kind of made a movie about the Orchid Thief. That's Adaptation. And I was like, that's what that movie's about? Yeah. Let's watch it.
1: Yeah, so we we watched that.
0: Um, Recommended.
1: You at home could watch that as part of the... uh... Our Shelf Challenge on Beanstack.
0: I don't know if that's an activity. What? Well, I didn't know when I made the challenge. Oh, my that goodness. Was, that, that was a thing. Oh, my I, goodness. I, well, watch it anyway. I, yeah, watch it for up.
1: your own edification. So do you want to talk? Uh, so, yeah, Orchid Thief, I would say, was one of her big hits as a book. Maybe the most attention until the library book.
0: So the library book was published in 2018 and it was like immediately picked up by like celebrity book clubs and stuff. So it was like splashy right on the scene. And I had been meaning to read it and hadn't, so that was the one that I picked up. It is about the Los Angeles Central Library mostly. It kind of touches like a little bit on the like library system in the city of Los Angeles as a whole, but it really, really focuses on central library and the fire that happened there in, in 1986, although she keeps going back to the fire and there was like it was suspected that it was an arson and they had a suspect that they kind of chased for multiple years and it fizzled out. And that's of the book opens was kind of like talking about this this character who was suspected of setting this fire. He had told some of his friends at a party that evening that he had done it. He was like a compulsive liar and he was interviewed by like fire investigators, by like attorneys and judges and papers over and over and over again for four or five years about this fire and he almost always said something different about it. Sometimes he was like he was there that day but he didn't do it. Sometimes he'd never been to the library at all and there was no way there was... Not a reliable witness, huh? No, there was and there was no like you know, physical evidence that anyone had started the fire. So she talks a little bit in the end about how difficult it is to determine, like, where fires start and whether or not they're intentionally set, and actually ends up talking to this guy who runs a nonprofit that works to, like, exonerate people who have been convicted of arson in cases where there isn't, like... Physical evidence or a witness. Right, which is really interesting, and that case ended up with the library fire kind of petering out because he died of AIDS Mm. in 1991. Wow. And the investigators were so sure that it was him, that they hadn't followed any other leads. And, you know, the guy that she talks to who does kind of forensic investigations into arsons, he's like, I can't say anything. for sure just looking at paperwork and stuff. But he looked at all the evidence, and he's like, I'm not convinced that it was intentionally said at all.
1: I was going to ask, did they proceed from something that indicated arson or did they kind of like hear that maybe this guy had done it and proceed from that?
0: They proceeded from the idea that it was arson because there had been this theory in fire investigations that wherever the fire burned, the hottest was where it started, which has been like debunked, but that's, that's where they started. Um, But it's crazy. So early on in the book, she she introduces this character and talks about her experience with libraries, and she kind of got attached to this story because she'd never heard of it before. She, she talks about how the same day that the library burned was the day that the Chernobyl nuclear plant meltdown happened, and so that dominated like national and international news. But also, at the time that she started writing this book, her mother was ill with dementia and and libraries had been a thing that she'd shared with her like as a child and it felt like a way that she could connect with her mom and I think by the time she finished the book her mother had passed.
1: These books take a long time to write. Yeah, That came up when the when I read too that it was like it's years of her mm-hmm. life that she spends you know chasing these people around and sitting in rooms like sh- sifting through paper.
0: Yeah and she spent so much time like shadowing all these different people at Central Library in their different jobs because they have like a big um, shipping department that couriers books to all of the branches. It's a huge library system. Don't you kind of want to like go to Central yeah to central? It's a cool building. I
1: read the opening, so I should say I I'm so excited to read this book after hearing you talk yeah. about it. I read a little bit at the beginning, intended to read both. like I always start out, you know, mm-hmm. saying like I'm gonna read everything. No,
0: yeah, so one of the early chapters is just like about the fire. And how they had all these false alarms. The fire alarm, I guess, went off all of the time. And this building, it was, the building was built 1926, which is the same year that our building was built. And it was just like, at the time, it was built this beautiful art piece. She talks about that later, about the architect and all of the artists he had designed that with him. But by the time that the fire happened, it had, you know, their collection had overgrown the space that they had. There was just like books piled all over the place really haphazardly it had all these like fire violations the wiring was old and it talked about how they had to run like fans we know about that here too all of the time but they couldn't do like they couldn't run fans at the same time that they did other stuff so they had to decide like what what got the electricity load a particular time but the way that they designed it made me think of a university libraries that i've been to where like the stacks are really cramped spaces so that they can have these huge like open reading rooms and they had all of the the shelving was graded for like ventilation but it made it a little bit easier for the fire to spread and it was all in these concrete stack areas and so it could get like so hot she talks about she talks to some of the firefighters who fought that fire and and she said it was like almost everybody in LA And in L.A. County had to come out and fight this fire. And they said it was like a perfect fire in some places that like most people never see where it's just white because it has the perfect amount of oxygen and fuel. It was just this incredibly hot burning fire and it ate up all of this they had this huge patent collection i think the whole thing burned they had all these really unique collections and a lot of it burned up and the fire department had to drill holes in places through the concrete and put water through and come in from the roof and so a lot of stuff also got wet and some nearby company let them use all of these deep freezers they had to freeze all of the wet materials from the library from the fire and then over the next several years they had to get all this money like raise money to pay to have them dried and restored and it's an incredible process to dry out because it's not like at home you dry out a book it's never the same (laughs) they have these like machines that will apply pressure and basically steam out the water Mm -hmm. That's
1: interesting, they freeze them. In my head, that seems like, oh, that would be a bad idea because you know when when you freeze things and it like expand water expands, it seems like it would just tear the book apart.
0: sometimes it does break the binding, but if you let it just be out in the air, it'll mold
1: right, right?
0: Um and some of so, like they' they would dry the books with the special book drying equipment. Really, freezing it is the only way you can preserve a book if you don't have the equipment on hand to do it. And then after it was dried, then they could assess the book for, did it ever get moldy? You know, if the binding is broken, that's something that they can fix. Or is it too burnt? Or, you know, is it salvageable even now? Some of them weren't.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, But yeah, they
0: had such interesting and rare collections. That they
1: had to, yeah.
0: Yeah, because it's not like...
1: It's not like I could imagine a library where... Maybe you would cut your losses and just buy new material, mm-hmm. but I imagine
0: they did also have to buy a lot. Of I'm sure
1: materials. they did, but I, you know what I mean, yeah. like where you you wouldn't it wouldn't be worth it to go through that process because you didn't have enough You right. material. It's
0: not just so much, but of they're
1: like a different kind of. Li- I mean, they're a different kind of the, a library of that scale, right? Yeah. Wow, yeah. wow, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, and then she really gets into. All of like these different characters who work at the library she shadows all these different library departments and their security there she talks about the history of the building and then profiles the different city librarians that have worked there since the first library which was really interesting so the what they call the city librarian is like the person who's in charge of all of Los Angeles public library system which is something like, I don't know, 57 branches or something. It's really big. Um, And then they have like a, you know, a head librarian for Central Library for the branch also. It was interesting because it started off with women librarians, which was unusual at the time. And then at one point, like the library board decided that they needed a man in charge. And so they just fired this librarian. And then there was like a couple of years of legal battle. Mm. But it was before there was any kind of protection for discrimination and stuff. Um, And the guy they hired was a real character. Like he had no library experience. He, He walked across the United States. He was into the Southwest and the Spanish mission history. And he was a really interesting person and did interesting stuff for the library while he was doing that. Eventually, he got fired, too. They just decided to go in a different direction. Um, but he started an autograph collection at the library, which they still have. Whoa. This would have been in, like, 19 some, you know, turn of the century. That seems
1: very Los Angeles, yeah.
0: right? He was a, I don't know, kind of a Teddy Roosevelt-type character, who was also somebody he had gone to school with.
1: He went to school with Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. Okay, so, like, ground us a little. Like, what period are we in?
0: In, like, 1900. Okay. Because there was this period originally as— libraries were being open public libraries. It was really unusual for a woman to be a librarian. And then that kind of shifted with I don't know, different things happened like so Andrew Carnegie decided that he was going to spend his wealth building libraries across the country, but he would only build you a library if you agreed to like fund it with you know, the community's taxes. And so a lot of communities took advantage of that and one of the ways that they cut their costs a little was by hiring women cuz you could pay them a lot less than men to do the same work. So that is what they did and that's kind of what why women really became like the dominant gender in the librarian profession. Wow. Yeah. And that continues to this day where we see the profession is mostly women and most of the leadership is men.
1: Wow. Yeah. That seems like a thing to reckon with. Wow. <laughs>
0: um. Yes. Anyways, so um, it was just really interesting. She talks about the different people who've led the library through the years, and it does make me really want to go to that library. It's still the same building that they built in 26. After it burned, there was years and years where they weren't in there because it took a long time to do cleanup, and staff were really concerned about safety. Yeah, I was, bet. You know, about... Asbestos and and all of that kind of stuff, but they also have incredible. Like they had this all these sculptures, some like, that have been lost because there was a period where they tore out like a sculpture garden and put in a parking lot mm. and murals and all kinds of stuff. And then after in the like mid nineties, they were able to build an expansion right next to it.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Yeah. Wow. And also in as part of it. So yeah, I think it it would be really cool to go there and see the building sounds really interesting.
1: Wow, that's very interesting. I really wanna read that now. Uh, I went in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why. I started the library book and then I decided instead to read another book she wrote. I decided to read Rin Tin Tin, her biography of Rin Tin Tin, um, which I'd had a copy, you know, I love Susan Orlean. I'd had a copy lying around for a long time but hadn't uh, read it. And it's an int- it's a really interesting book. She, it's. I think the first book I've ever written that is a biography of a dog, although it's you know it is and it isn't. It's a it's it's a biography of a dog, who is also sort of an idea. So so for people, I think for a lot of people today, um, Rin Tin Tin is a name they might have heard, but they may not know a whole lot. Um, so Rin Tin, Tin was a dog, who a German Shepherd, who was in silent films. So that's how it started. And had a lot of different iterations and activities. A lot of people more recently would know Rin Tin, Tin from a TV show that was made in, like, the 50s called The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. So the book, the book is just fascinating. It's just fascinating. So it's, like, about Rin Tin Tin. Rin Tin, Tin though, if we want to do the math, Rin Tin, Tin was born in 1918. So, you know, uh, Rin Tin Tin was not the dog for the whole time. And so it's like she spends some time kind of like digging in, trying to find, figure out and find the, the origins and the real dog, but then also really explores how Rintintin starts out as this dog and then becomes like this idea and how this idea and in some cases obsession ends up touching all of these lives. And also about the idea of sort of immortality through fame, immortality through sort of an idea of, of a a thing becoming bigger than the thing itself in the world. It's also just as much a biography of Lee Duncan. So Lee Duncan was the man who found Rin Tin, Tin and trained him. And Lee Duncan was this fascinating character, really interesting guy. He'd had like a really rough childhood at one point, been put in an orphanage. It was at a time where parents would often do that for economic reasons and put put their kids in an orphanage. Him and his sister were put in an orphanage. And then it was sort of like they might be adopted out, the parents might or might not come back for them in time, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so he develops, she spends a lot of time sort of talking about his personality and how it developed and sort of lonely, you know, he, so anyway, he ends up going to war in World War I. And it's a fascinating little section when she talks about World War I, because the book is, it's about Rin Tin, Tin but it's also just about our relationship to dogs in particular, but also our relationship to animals, and she talks about how that was sort of the last war. People might be familiar with World War One as a, a war that sort of straddled old and new. Terrible new weapons, but also old strategies. You know, there's the, and they. It was like the last big war where they used a lot of animals. Sixteen million animals. Everything from camels to mules to dogs, to uh, messenger pigeons. And it, that was really fascinating for me. And I think people people forget that. But she talks a lot, too, about how other countries had, like, really sophisticated canine forces, Germany in particular, and the United States didn't until World War II. And there's this crazy part where she talks about in World War II, lots of countries in previous wars had people donate their dogs to the war effort, and the United States did that in World War II. And that's a fascinating thing that people— People can't imagine now. But she also talks about that. That also went along with people's sort of evolving ideas of pets. But it was late enough that people did, you know, in World War I, they said people donated their dogs. Dogs were a lot closer to like livestock for a lot of people. They had a dog, working dogs. But World War II, people had developed this close pet relationship with dogs. Dogs were much more in the home. You know, it was part of that move from rural to city or suburb that dogs became much more like close to people. Before that, you know, you had a dog. It was around, running around the neighborhood, yeah, or the farm, or the ranch, or whatever. So it was really personal for people. And at one point, the Quartermaster General who oversaw that program, they had to. At first, they tried to answer all the letters because people would write these letters and be like, "How's uh, my dog doing? Is he like the rations? Is he is he going to measure up?" They had to return a lot of dogs because they're like, "This dog's too nervous or stupid." Um. <laughs> anyway, I got I digress. So Lee Duncan was a soldier in World War II. And at one point, he was doing some kind of reconnaissance mission in France. And he had already been a dog person, an animal person. He'd had, like, kind of a series of unfortunate things where, like, pets were taken away from him or died, you know. And he's going through this area, and he sees a kennel. He knows it immediately. He sees this building. He goes, that's a kennel. And it's bombed out. And he goes in, and all the dogs have been killed. It's a German canine forces kennel, except this one female German shepherd and her puppies. And so he rescues them, and he ends up taking two of them. It's not an easy thing to do. He ends up just to talk his way into getting two of these puppies onto this troop ship to go back to the United States, and ends up training Rin Tin Tin and Nanette. Rin Tin, Tin actually comes from a, a French, a thing that was a, it was a sort of trend during the war in France, and it was about this couple, Rin Tintin Tin and Nanette, who had supposedly survived these two lovers, who had survived this bombing, and so people had. It became a thing where people, a lot of soldiers, had these little charms that represented Rintintin and Nanette, who were this couple. It was like a hopeful sort of charm, and a lot of French people made them and sold them to soldiers. And so he named the two puppies that he kept Rintintin and Nanette. I don't, I don't know that people know that that's where that came, name came from. And so he brings them back and sort of trains them. This is a time also when, like, dog training wasn't really a thing. And if it was, it was very punitive. He was not a punitive trainer. He didn't use treats to train him either. He used a squeaking doll that, for some reason, they just loved.
0: That's kind of like how people do clicker, maybe clicker training now.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I'm going on way too long about this. But he, it has all these things that will be fascinating for, you know, the rise of dog training, the rise of all these different relationships we have with our pets. So he trains Rin Tin, Tin and eventually gets the idea that Rin Tin Tin should be in the movies. And he like goes from door to door in Hollywood, which is still pretty small, and eventually gets him into silent films. He becomes like a huge star. And the book sort of traces over time how that the rises and falls in popularity. And the book actually opens with uh, Lee really on in hard times, sort of between the silent film era. And then in World War II, he was a PR dog and the the TV show. And he's like got no money, he's only able to feed the dogs because he has like an old uh, sponsorship deal where he gets free dog food for life.
0: So I have a question. Sure. So how come, so like was Rinton Tin like a better actor than Nanette? How come he was the famous dog?
1: I'm trying to remember. I mean, Nanette was, how did that work? Yeah, I think that's how it happened. It was sort of just like an aptitude thing. And then like, <laughs> this is interesting too, like in a lot of these movies, so... He talks a lot about Lassie. She talks a lot about Lassie and the contrast there. Because like Lassie was not a real... Lassie was like a fictional character right. that was played by these dogs. And actually, they were... Play, so Lassie's a female dog in the thing, but always played by male dogs because they have prettier coats. And a lot of contempt in the Rin Tin Tin camp for the Lassie camp. But like Rin Tin, Tin was a real dog who played characters in movies. He was a dog actor. Yeah. And it was crazy at times. Like, was it just as popular or more popular than a lot of human actors and got just as much accolades? And Susan Arlene is interesting. She talks about she hadn't thought about Rin Tin, Tin in years. Like, she'd watched the TV show and then something reminded her. And it, you know, it was like the Flaubert, the Madeleine cookie, you know. And she remembered her grandfather, her sort of stern grandfather, who collected toys. Like, he didn't like children very much, but he collected toys. And it was always like, oh, you can't touch these toys. And one was this Rin Tin Tin that they always wanted. It was always out of reach. And that becomes a sort of a metaphor for her quest to, like, find this dog. And it's so interesting. This Rin Tin Tin legacy endures. There become, you know, fractious uh, things around, like, who carries on the legacy once Lee Duncan dies, and there are lawsuits, and there are all kinds of stuff. And it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it was just a fascinating book. And if you love dogs, you know, it, there's a lot in there you might not have realized about the history of dogs in America and our relationship with them. One of the tenderest parts of the book I was thinking about is, you know, the original Rin Tin Tin gets, gets older, and he called him Rinty, Rinty. And at one point, Lee, he gets too old, you know, to do some of the stunts and stuff. And Lee, and he's also too old to hike, but Lee takes him off for like this long trip. I want to say it's months in the Sierras. And he builds him like this little trolley thing that he pulls. And they just spend, a bu- at the end of Rintintintin's life, a bunch of months alone together. And it was so beautiful. And then Rintintin dies and he buries him with the squeaky doll, you know, and oh my gosh, it's there were some, yeah, I uh, emotional parts. Yeah, very fascinating, very fascinating. Did
0: you have a part that you wanted to read?
1: Oh, sure. I'll I'll read a little bit from the opening. She kind of does this, it's called Forever. She kind of starts with the sweeping opening, and I kind of give you a taste of what Lee Duncan is like, and also the aura around this dog. He believed the dog was immortal, There will always be a Rin Tin Tin, Lee Duncan said, time and time again, to reporters, to visitors, to fan magazines, to neighbors, to family, to friends. At first, this must have sounded absurd, just wishful thinking about the creature that had eased his loneliness and made him famous around the world. And yet, just as Lee believed, there has always been a Rin Tin Tin. The second Rin Tin Tin was not the talent his father was, but still, he was Rin Tin Tin, carrying on what the first dog had begun. After Rin Tin Tin Jr., there was Rin Tin Tin III, and then another Rin Tin Tin after him, and then another, and then another. There has always been another, and Rin Tin Tin has always been more than a dog. He was an idea and an ideal, a hero who was also a friend, a fighter who was also a caretaker, a mute genius, a companionable loner. He was one dog and many dogs, a real animal and an invented character, a pet as well as an international celebrity. He was born in 1918 and never died. There were low moments and setbacks when Lee did doubt himself in Rin Tin Tin. The winter of 1952 was one such point. Lee was broke. He had washed out of Hollywood and was living in the blank, baked valley east of Los Angeles, surviving on his wife's job at an orange packing plant while Rin Tin Tin survived on free kibble Lee received for an old sponsorship arrangement with Kennel Ration, the dog food company. The days were long. Most afternoons, Lee retreated to a little annex off his barn that he called the memory room where he shuffled through old newspaper clips and yellowing photographs of Rin Tin Tin's glory days, pulling the soft quilt of memory of what really was and what he recalled and what he wished had been over the bony edges of his life.
0: So how how long did original Rin Tin, Tin live?
1: So he was born in 18... I want to say he lived, like, until the th- in the 30s, maybe 34 or 35... And then Rin Tintin Jr., like, there's always this thing of like picking the new Rin because they had lots of puppies. And Lee, at different times, like, survived on selling puppies. But, like, at some point, he would always pick a puppy. And sometimes he picked better than others. But at other times, and Rin Tintin Jr. was like, everybody was like, mm, so, not his father.
0: So it was his, like, bloodline?
1: Sort of. Uh, there's some, like, contention around that. It was for a while. And then, um, There's suspicion that at one point Lee may have just gone and gotten another German Shepherd Mm -hmm. that was closer to the original and like swapped it in. And then original, so in the silent film era, Rin did everything. He did his own stunts. He did, you know, they trained him to do all kinds of crazy stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, type at a typewriter, you know, all these kind of things for the movies. And Lee used voice commands, which worked in the silent films really well, but he had to like change when the talkies started because he couldn't just stand there and give him voice commands anymore because everybody would know. And then he never had doubles. They talk she talks a lot about like other dog actors and you know, she's a she's a writer who she'll go off in all these different directions. But at a certain point they did have to start using doubles and when the show was made in the in the 50s <laughs> they ended up choosing not the Rin Tin Tin air that was Lee's mm-hmm. dog but a different dog and it was hard. But like Rin Tin Tin, the dog, multiple dogs went around as Rin Tin Tin, you know. And he had his place in California it was called Rancho Rin Tin Tin. And uh, people would come see the dog, but then also the dog that was on tour. And she gets into how, you know, it was bigger than this one dog. But it, it yeah, it's a really, really interesting book. And I think, uh, like I said, I'd never read a biography of a dog. And she really makes it vivid. Um, and people had all these ideas about Rin Tin Tin, you know. His press people, especially in the middle of the century, were were crazy and say all these things that weren't true, like that he was, you know, had a personal chef that would serve him the stuff, and he pl- classical music piped into his house mm-hmm. and all this, all this sensational stuff.
0: That's funny. So I just started reading Sona Skivian, Conan O'Brien's assistant. I started reading her book about being Conan O'Brien's assistant, it's called "World's Worst Assistant," and she talks about when she first one of her like early entertainment jobs was she was like an NBC page in LA and so a lot of what the, they do is just like do tours for tourists oh nice and how she was like I just made stuff up she's like <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you believe that like oh uh, what was one of the things that oh that this tv host had a tanning bed in his office like that's I just made that up it's not true um and that's it made me that. that's funny
1: yeah another thing I think that's interesting she talks a lot about breeds And the rise and fall of different breeds. And the German Shepherd, obviously, she profiles kind of the rise and fall of the German Shepherd. As a breed, Germans, as you might imagine, uh, that's where it comes from. The German Shepherds were much used in the German canine forces. Actually, exclusively used, I think. And, uh, you know, Hitler really liked them and stuff. And then he thought they were wolf you know, wolfish, especially wolfish. And he liked that, although they're not any more closely related to wolves than any other dog. But then she talks about, you know, obviously Rint and Tin made them really popular, other um, depictions. And she said one of the things that really hurt them, and so they were also really good service dogs. So they were used, you know, all kinds of guard dogs, all kinds of things. One of the things that really hurt the popularity was in Life magazine in 1963 when images of dogs being sicked by Bull Connor onto um, civil rights. Activists; those were German shepherds, mm-hmm. and uh, to, you know it's not fair to the breed or whatever. But but she talks about how that that really caused a drop off because in how people saw them, you know, as instruments yeah. of violence. And then she talks about too this was a bad thing for Rin Tintin's brand, right in the '60s, because this hero dog thing. He was it was a time when people were were turning away from authority and some of these old fashioned ideals that Rin Tintin represented. But also the German Shepherd became really associated with as like the dog of authority, the dog of the prison guard, the dog of the cop, the dog of the, you know, Nazi in the movie, the dog of war. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really difficult. I wouldn't have thought about the rise and fall of breeds that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. the Movies really drive dog breeds. Movies and TV, like popular culture.
1: And the news, In that case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She also talks about other incredible dogs, and it made me think of a more local example. And I can't remember where we were, but we saw a monument. It may have been the Oregon Gardens. There was a monument to Bobby the Wonder Dog. And I think that there are monuments in Portland, too, that I've run across to Bobby the Wonder Dog. And I don't know if people know about Bobby. Bobby the Wonder Dog uh, was an Oregon dog who covered 2,551 miles on his own to return home to Silverton, Oregon, after he was lost while his owners were visiting family in Wolcott, Indiana.
0: Yes. Yep. There's actually in at the Oregon Garden they have a statue of him, but also like a little garden that's a dog garden that's dedicated to him. Yeah. And it's like talks about, you know, gardening with pets. And-
1: yeah. So I, I don't know. That's a that's a local example. Mm-hmm. Um, and she profiles some of that. There are some incredible dogs. Um,
0: yeah. It's interesting. So I had a Dalmatian growing up. And early in the 90s, when the live action 101 Dalmatians movie came out, there was this huge peak for those dogs. And actually, I think this was just incidental. I'd always wanted a Dalmatian from the cartoon 101 Dalmatians. My parents eventually got us one. And then she ended up having like a litter of puppies right around this time that that movie came out. And there was just this surge of Dalmatian popularity. Um, and I think that was really bad for the breed too, because our Dalmatian was like more of like a house dog, but in general, they're active breed. They need a lot of like training and stimulation and
1: yeah. And people, people aren't prepared for they that. They weren't
0: prepared. They would, uh, you know, buy one and then, and then not be able, you know, not be able to take, take care, care of it, it. it and stuff.
1: Yeah, she talks about overbreeding too. That wasn't a thing that happened early on in German Shepherds. But she talks about toward the end, you know, Lee, I think died in 1960. But like, toward the end of his life, there was people had started breeding. So German Shepherds, one of the things they really like about them is the way they walk, they, they have this sort of glide and people started really breeding for these sort of angled back legs mm-hmm. that eventually caused all this like hip dysplasia all this all this stuff and lee was very opposed he was very opposed to that and there, there formed like these two contingents in the german shepherd community which who were, who were like pro mm-hmm. i guess you know it's worth it to have this trade, and then other people who were like what yeah. and lee was he's a very empathetic person very empathetic person and that also ran him into trouble in business in Hollywood, you know, because he was like – he believed handshakes were good, good enough for deals. You know, he believed – he he wanted to spend all this time going to orphanages because he had been an orphan, you know, and, and uh, would say yes to, like, anything. He just tells a sweet story because his puppies were expensive, especially later on. You know, they were $250, which was about $2,000, but like he was a, he was just these kids wrote to him and they were like, we've been uh, doing all these little, you know, the things kids do to save money. We've got $21 and 55 cents. I don't know if that's enough. Let us know how much more we need to save. And he writes back. He needs the money too. Lee needs the money. And he writes back and he says, uh, you know, if you can get to 25 by the end of the month, the puppy is yours. And he sends them the puppy. He's just like that kind of guy, right? A portrait of him and rent and Tin, Tin hangs in the orphanage he was in, you know. Another tender moment, and then we can we can move on, that got me is when the dogs were sent to World War II. So the Quartermaster General, they gave up and had like a form letter, right, to respond. But individual soldiers would often write to the families, especially if the dog was killed. And there was one actually, your hometown, Ridgefield, a couple was written this beautiful letter from this Marine talking about how this dog he had served with, their dog who had been killed in a gunfight in in one of the islands in the Pacific. And it was just like, oh, my gosh.
0: There's this really good uh, graphic novel that's in the in the kids' graphic novels collection, kids' comic book collection, called Dogs of War. And it is like three different dogs in three different wars talking about the work that they do. I'd recommend it.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I know I went on about that book for quite a long time.
0: <laughs> it sounds, um, sounds really good.
1: She's really good, and I... And, you know, I think is really interesting and admirable and sort of a thing that I think sounds like a fun way to live your life is somebody like that who's carved out this career where they get to just sort of like follow their interests. Mm-hmm. She write a book about Ren Tin, Tin Orchid Thieves, the library. She has one called Saturday Night that's about what people do on Saturday night. A, a million little pieces on every topic in magazines. Um, her new book, Animals Are Big Thing, I think as her career has gone on, she is more and more animal centric and her new yeah. book is called On Animals.
0: I do really want to read that one too.
1: Yeah, she and you know she's written a lot. She's a chicken person as as Becky is as well and she's written a lot about the chicken, the backyard chicken. So, check out Susan Orlean. You won't be you won't be disappointed. We're drawing close to the end of the year. And thank you to everybody who has been following along and participating in the R Shelf Challenge on Beanstack. We see you. We're so excited that you're, you're on this uh, journey with us reading. But if you haven't started, don't be discouraged. It's not too late. Jump in there. There's lots of ways to earn your badges and participate. So stay tuned. We're also already busy at work cooking up the Our Shelf Challenge for 2023. Mm. Whole bunch of new writers, uh, new genres, different things. We're going to have different guests. We've got so many exciting things for, for you to look forward to.
0: Yeah. So for September, we will be reading Toni Morrison. And I don't remember. I can see past Becky having thought of this. Um, but I, I don't remember for sure if we picked Toni Morrison for September because of banned book week which is the last week of september
1: i think it may have been a consideration
0: but i'm really excited about that austin's never read beloved
1: i've never read anything
0: really anything at all like
1: an interview maybe and like maybe a bit of a this or that but no
0: well 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 so that'll be good and you could probably get a few of them because her her novels aren't very long
1: yeah you know i'm gonna be try to be reasonable i'm not gonna try to read (laughs) all of her novels um but I think I'm going to start with The Bluest Eye, which is her first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read about her a lot as an editor. She was an editor, and I'm sure we'll talk about that for a lot of other people. Um, real literary citizen. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, Band Book, Band Book Month, other things that are going on, uh, Band Book Week, excuse me, other things that are going on. Our uh, Adult Book Club is going to be Band Book themed. and We're reading The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which I'm very excited about. So celebrate Band Book Week. With us, And, you know, I think especially right now, there's a lot of book banning going on. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been following as we have Salman Rushdie. We wanted to note our profound feelings of, of solidarity and sympathy with him and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, that man has sacrificed a lot for free expression. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'll have a Salman Rushdie episode down the line. But uh, in the meantime, we hope you'll, you'll pick up his books. We, we hope that he has a, a good recovery.
0: Yeah, we have a number of them at the library, although I think Austin has checked almost all of them out.
1: No, no, no. (laughs) We have plenty at the library, plenty to go around. So
0: That makes me think in the library book, there's this interesting part where Susan Orlean, she decides that to really understand the, um, the loss of the library burning... And it's interesting she talks about the effect on the staff at the library at that time. There was so much, like, PTSD. People's, like, marriages ended. Mm-hmm. People were, like, so upset about this this loss of having to go back to work in, like, these incredible circumstances and, and being either in this burnt-up building or in, like, weird rented spaces. And just feeling like sometimes like your life's work is just up in smoke and not just your life but the life of generations before you that you've been entrusted with this stuff anyways so she decides that she's gonna burn a book and after all of this she's like oh which book should should i just burn one of my books and she's like no i have too many it's just like a commodity that would be too easy and so I think her husband ends up buying her a brand new copy of Fahrenheit 451. And mm. she burns it up in her backyard.
1: And there's chip feelings about it.
0: Just feelings about it. She's found it very difficult to do. But then also, like, it. Once she set it on fire, it happened so fast. Yeah. And she felt like it was almost like an exhilaration. <laughs> like mm, that's interesting. I've done Doing something that was bad. Yeah. And she felt like, oh, this is the Raid Bradbury book. It's about burning books. But also he had like really personal connections with the Los Angeles Central Library. He had written a number of his own books or, or short stories and stuff there. So Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So much. I think we could go on and on. There's just so much contained in a Susan Orlean Mm -hmm. book article. But for now, I think we got to get back in the stacks. So
0: So, thank you for listening to your shelf or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the Friends of the Longview Public Library the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf Mind jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldry from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry.